Good evening, and welcome to the Dreary Midnight Podcast. <laughs> my name is Lisa, my pronouns are she, they, and tonight we have our permanent, now permanent co-host, Celeste. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, my name is Celeste, my pronouns are she, her. Hooray! And you'll be coming on more full time. Yes. <laughs> Which I am super excited about. It's a lot more fun when there's more people involved. <laughs> but it's still going to be a Lisa-heavy episode this week. What do you know about the Dyatlov Pass incident? Um, okay. I know that there was a group of hikers. Yep. They were discovered, their bodies were discovered with some really weird things. Like one of them had their eyes missing. Yeah. One of them had their tongue cut out. There were no survivors except for one person who went back, so yeah. he didn't wasn't actually there. And there's lots of theories as to what could have happened from avalanches to aliens. And, <laughs> and we'll yeah, get that's into pretty all much that. it. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, congrats, you just summarized the entire case. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So in January of 1959, ten experienced hikers went on an expedition into the Ural Mountains. They were mostly university classmates. Uh, nine of them were studying at Yai, which is a polytechnical institute. And the last one was a World War II veteran. They were trying to complete a grade three certification, which is the highest achievement available for hikers and campers at the time. So it's a party of 10. One of the hikers was Yuri Yudin. He bowed out at the last moment. He had a number of health conditions. Some say it was sciatica. Some, I've also heard that it was rheumatism which is like a heart condition mm-hmm. maybe both but either way he yeah, didn't want to yeah. go <laughs> yeah so he bowed out at the last minute because which one of them was flaring up yeah um and he figured that well hiking in the siberian mountains in the winter probably wouldn't help matters <laughs> decided to spend the rest of winter break visiting his parents and his siblings in his hometown and he would meet back up with the rest of the party at the start of the semester but backing out of the trip saved yuri yudin's life uh, when he arrived at school for classes yuri was surprised that his classmates were not backing as well in fact families were worried including some of the siblings uh like rufina dyatlov who was the sister of the group's leader she was also studying radio engineering i didn't even yeah. think of this but yeah. like this was in the 70s right 1959. Oh, the 50s. Oh, my yeah. God. Okay, so it's not even... So, obviously, you don't have locations. You don't no. have tracking. You Correct. don't have yeah. texts or whatever. Yeah. So they had to file uh, where the route was and their estimated return time. Mm. Uh, in order to get the certification, you had to, like, file all of these things. Um, and... When Yuri left, the group was running a few days behind. They were due back no later than February 14th. And I heard two different stories that when he hit the turnaround point, some sources say Yuri did send a telegram saying Mm -hmm. estimating two extra days. Others say it was going to be three days and he didn't send a telegram. When did they start school again? Do you know? Um, I want to say it was... On or around February 16th. Oh, okay. And so that it was, was just a couple days. Yeah. And so, um, but their new ETA was going to be February 16th as well. Okay. And so, um, even if he did send a telegram, it's still sort of like maybe there were a few other delays. Because as you say, there's no uh, long distance radio. And part of getting the certification is that uh, you have to spend a few days away from human settlement. Um, 
And to get a grade three certification, you had to hike 300 kilometers, of at least 100 of which are, are over rough terrain and away from the settlement um, for at least 16 days worth of travel, all told. Um, and, they, and so they were planning for about 16 days. And um, it was on that last uh, stretch out to the turnaround point and to come back um, is where something went down. Oh, no. But still, maybe there are a few other delays. Maybe it would take another few days to get back to somewhere with radio. Um, and after all, they were hiking in Siberia in the winter. Yeah. <laughs> and um, along a mountain called Kolatsyakol, uh, towards Otorten Mountain. Um, and Kolatsyakol is the indigenous Mansi name for the for the mountain, which translate either, either to Silent Mountain or Mountain of the Dead. Okay, um, either way, that's terrifying. <laughs> and then Otorten Mountain is uh, translates to don't go there. <laughs> Another don't go there place. <laughs> yeah, so it's ominous, but um, there are some theories that it's more in sort of a hunting indication, like don't go up there. There's nothing, you're, you're, mm. the, the effort's not going to be worth the calories for the hunting um, because there are hunting trails around there. Uh, they noted in the journals that there, there are hunting trails around the base of the mountains, but nothing, no vegetation, nothing as you get up towards the peaks. And as the days dragged on though, getting later into February, the families were really starting to worry because even with the delay, the families hadn't heard anything. And eventually the university authorized the use of planes and helicopters and search parties. And at the end of February, they found some of the bodies and a really strange scene. Tonight on the Dreary Midnight Podcast, we are discussing theories and timelines for the Diatlov Pass incident. Right, so different people, uh, nine, ten total. Uh, the leader was Igor Dyatlov, whose name is now lent to the past. Yes. Uh, he was the leader. Uh, he was a fifth year in radio engineering. He's 23 years old, possibly dating one of the girls on the trip. Her wow. name is Zina, uh, who was also studying radio engineering. Um, Yuri Yudin uh, was the one who turned around. He was studying geology. There's a lot of people named Yuri. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Guess so, it's a common name. Yeah. Um, and because next up is uh, Yuri Doroshenko, who was a fourth year in uh, radio engineering as well, um, who apparently also dated Zena at one point. Apparently, he once chased off a bear with a geology hammer. I could not find any more details about that story. But I believe it. If that's <laughs> not the most aggressively Russian thing I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and so uh, Zinaida or Zina Kolmogorova, Kolmogorova, Zinaida Kolmogorova. I should have said these out loud before I tried to say them on the podcast. <laughs> Just um, disclaimer: <laughs> we do not speak I, I Russian. <laughs> so disclaimer: sorry if we pronounce any of these yeah. names wrong. Zina uh, was dating, possibly dating uh, Igor. She was also fourth year radio engineering student. Um, it seems to me like the, it's a study that takes five years, all told. Um, and Alexander Kolovatov, fourth year, uh, he was 24 years old, uh, studying physics and technology. Uh, he had attended school in Moscow and gra- graduated with a degree in metallurgy um, and worked 
at um, as a lab assistant at a place that researched development of material for the nuclear industry. Oh. Um, which is... Nuclear stuff comes up later. Yeah, we'll save that <laughs> yeah. for later. Yeah. Uh, so the last person who joined, but not the last person on the list, is um, Alexander or Sasha Zolotaryov, uh, who was a veteran in World War II. He was one of the 3% of Russian men who survived World War II. And most of these people are like 20 to 24, and Zolotaryov is uh, 37. Oh, wow. So he's a bit older. Um and there are theories about like why he was there, why how he was he joining jo- later. Yeah, how did yeah. he um, get in that group? So uh, there are some theories that say he's, and this is one. I think the one that I agree with is that he's potentially a professor, mm. um, and he it was sort of a mid-stage vibe check for um, students that he would be. Um, not necessarily that he would be engaging with, but sort of a vibe check is the impression that I got. Uh, there are other theories that say that uh, he was a government agent sent to spy on uh, some of the students who had... Uh, Did um, the survivor, Yuri... Uh, Yuri Yudin? Yudin? Yeah. Did he know this person? Uh, the impression that I got is that Zolotaryov knew Dyatlov, um, but Zolotaryov didn't know oh. anybody else before Got it. um but by most accounts he integrated pretty well into the group so the other girl on the trip uh and the youngest who was 20 her name was uh Lyudmila domnina um she was a third year studying engineering and economics uh this was her first category three hike um two years prior she had been accidentally shot in the leg by a oh hunter and just like was super casual about it Another aggressively Russian thing, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, but like was hiking again within the year, apparently. Um, And apparently she was solidly communist, um, which possibly had uh, tensions. I don't know. This is a personal theory. Tensions with another student, Nikolai Theobald Prignoles, who was who had already graduated. He was 23. um, And he he was born in an internment camp. Uh, Mm. His mom was russian and his dad was french and his uh according to one of the books there death of nine um his quote his father was accused of being active in the revolutionary party and convicted of crimes against the state the family was sent to the camp and uh, nikolai's father was sentenced to 10 years hard labor working in the mines his uh dad died when he was only nine years old which is wow um but he was that's like the only potential tension that i Mm -hmm. saw um, so two other, few others. Rustic Slobodin was, uh, had graduated the year prior, um, with a degree in mechanical engineering. He worked at, uh, plant 817, which was a nuclear plant, along with, uh, Yuri or Georgi Krivonoshenko, okay. um, who was 23, had graduated in, uh, 1957, so two years prior. Uh, he also worked at plant 817. He had just gotten promoted to a supervisory position there. Um, he had been part of the cleanup crew for the uh, Kishtim d- disaster oh uh, in September of 1957. Um, and again, according to that book, De- Death of Nine, um, up until Chernobyl, Kishtim was the worst nuclear disaster in the world. Um, 
today it ranks as number three uh, behind Chernobyl and Fukushima. Uh-huh. Krivonoshenko had been part of the cleanup crew for that. And he um, survived it, too. Yeah. Well, yeah, so he survived that. And he was on, like, he had literally just gotten this promotion. He was on vacation and was set to start uh, his oh, new duties on that. February 21st. <laughs> I hate that all of these people are, like, young and promising. Yeah, and, they're, like... and. Just graduated, about to graduate, like, all of these things. <laughs> and it's even more ironic when some of them are like, yeah, I survived World War Two. I got shot I in got the leg. I got shot in the leg. I survived radiation. Yeah. And then... And then I get taken out by a natural disaster. <laughs> by a mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So, um... We know a lot of the information about how... About the timeline of it before whatever it was happened um, up until about January 30th, because in order to get their certification, they had to have photos and prove that we were here and filed the route and just to document that they were there and they know how to set up their tent and all that kind of thing. So January 23rd is when they set out from the university town and they took a train from the university town to Sarov. There was another group that was going to be going parallel to them for 25 days. Uh, They were the Blinov group, but they were going to be going parallel which is interesting because there's testimony from them later because they were a couple miles farther away. Um, close enough that they could have seen or heard some interesting things, but not so close that they would have been affected by them. Yeah. January 25th, uh, they get to Vijay around 2 p.m. And that's where they sp- the Dyatlov group and the Blinov group split up. Vijay is the last place, last, like, town town that they're going to be in. Um, so they get up to a logging camp uh, by truck on January 26th. It's called 41st Quarter. Um, and they get quarters in a local hostel there. Um, and that's going to be the last place of human habitation. Um, so 27th, they arrive at 2nd North, which is an uninhabited mining town. It's about 15 miles from 41st Quarter. Um, they left 41st Quarter at 4 p.m., and arrived at 11 and got to bed at 3 a.m., which is wild. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because it's like, I looked it up and about, and at that time of year, um, sunsets around 5, 5.15. Oh. So it's like, you're just not gonna, yeah. That, it's just dark. It's, it's just dark. I mean, it's dark to be Russian in the winter, but you know, <laughs> especially dark. Um, and so Second North was the turnaround point for Yuri Yudin, um, and so he's still got some rock samples because he's studying geology. And he's uh, he's going to be into that kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And they had one of the uh, um, people from the logging camp had uh, helped transport the last of their stuff up to the um, up to Second North. And so Yuri Yudin, this was the last chance to take a ride back. And so he's like, I'm just going to take the ride back. Um, so January 28th, so like the next morning, he gave the group some of his extra socks and shirts and mittens, and he left with with the logger who had the sled. Um, And so according to journals, Yuri left at like 10 a.m., and the rest of the group left by 11.45, going opposite directions. Um, According to journals, they stopped for food at 4 and stopped for the day at 5.30 by the Lazva River. and again, sunsets at five fifteen, so yeah. it's probably getting dark. Um, Can't. It's not really smart to hike in the dark. Yeah. So I mean, they do it anyway a little bit, but still. Um, so January 29th, they're following a Mansi hunting trail. The Mansi are the um, the indigenous tribe near there, mm-hmm. um, which apparently they have writing because they kept noting that they they see like trail signals. 
uh, trail signs. Um, the weather is recorded at being negative 13 degrees Celsius, Ooh. according to the group diary, which is 8.3 degrees Fahrenheit. Jesus um, Christ. Apparently that was also Doroshenko's 21st birthday. Happy which birthday. Is like, happy birthday, Doroshenko. Freezing weather. <laughs> um, he was... I hope they brought him, like, a granola bar or something. Like, a, <laughs> yeah, something no, fun. Yeah, apparently they uh, passed around a tangerine or something like That's that. That's adorable. They gave him a tangerine and then he... So that was January 29th. Um, January 30th was the last recorded day of the diaries. So whatever oh. happened probably happened the night of the 30th or the daytime of the first or into the second. So they were basically... They were dead for, like, two weeks before for, anybody yeah, realized... Two, yeah. Yeah, like probably around two weeks, almost yeah. three. Yeah. Oh, God. Um, yeah, snow at that point was recorded in the group diary as being about four feet deep uh, once they got off of the hunting trail. Because uh, the hunting trail splits off in kind of closer to the water and stays by the trees. Uh, doesn't go uphill because, again, dead in silence. <laughs> yeah. The weather was recorded as negative 17 degrees Celsius or 1.4 degrees Fahrenheit in the morning negative 13 during midday and negative 26 during the night oh oh i'm and i'm freezing right now it's like 40 degrees <laughs> yeah. yeah no it's just like here i am in the apartment the heat set at like 70 degrees and we're still both wearing jackets <laughs> i had okay this is there has to be adrenaline in that yeah but also like it has to be a there has to be some sort of just used to it yeah i mean obviously they came prepared with like a whole bunch of layers and they're experienced hikers yeah. because they're trying to get their certification to be you know yeah like presumably they did a bunch of category twos before yeah. they did this cat three exactly Zena's diary recorded them as starting to get stuff together at about 9.30 that day. Um, Dawn was around 9.15 to 9.20. She also said they would probably build some sort of storage pit because um, it seems like that would be almost at the point where they would be leaving the shelter of the trees for a few days and then get out to like the summit, prove they were at the summit, and then yeah. start getting back. Um, but you don't want that extra weight when you're all exposed like that. So whatever the thing was uh, probably happened overnight on January 30th or 31st or daytime on February 1st. And so, again, your union's not back in class until the 15th, 16th. Yeah. Well, don't start to panic until the 16th for yeah. sure. Nobody's <laughs> expect because everyone knows that they're on these trips. Nobody's yeah. expecting them to be yeah. able to communicate anyway. And I'm so. just thinking, like, the, even, like, with the Blinov group, like... The one that they departed with, mm -hmm. their their timelines are different, so they're not going to panic if they don't see them because yeah. there's a weak differential between them. So what's the <laughs> so yeah. if they don't see them, then it's like, oh yeah, we missed them because they're going to set to come back a week before us. But search parties uh, officially started around February twentieth. February twenty first is up when a plane carrying volunteers and supplies circled around just to hope to see if they could see the bodies from the air. Uh, February 23rd, there were helicopters. Were uh, they thinking at this point that they were dead? Or were they thinking that they were trapped somewhere? Um, I think they might have been thinking they might have been trapped somewhere because they were looking for some signs of that they'd signaled for SOS. Um, and if they're circling, that's probably like, if they have a mirror or, and there's no vegetation, so it's probably like... If they're circling, they're probably looking 
for someone around to be mm-hmm. waving or flashing with a mirror or something like that. Yeah. Um, but they didn't spot any signs of the group on the 21st. On the 23rd, they started getting helicopters. The dr- helicopters dropped off different groups at different points along the route. Um, and there were a few different potential ski trails to follow. Um, February 26th is when they find the campsite. All right. So they find the campsite on the 26th. And this is just going to quote from a very long quote from Death of Nine. A pair of skis stood up right next to the tent. An ice axe was stuck in the snow near the front entrance. A flashlight was laying on top of the tent with a dusting of snow on it. The flashlight was switched off and turned on when switched on, indicating the battery was still good. Igor's coat was just outside the tent entrance. In the pockets were a pocket knife and a picture of Xena. Several socks, hats, loose change, and other small objects were scattered around the campsite. About 50 feet away from the campsite were several sets of footprints leading away from the tent. It was apparent that whoever made the prints were either barefoot or wearing only socks. Some of the footprints were indented tracks, where others were raised tracks like a column. End quote. Uh, And again, that was from Death of Nine. There were some signs of a struggle, possibly a handprint. And near the tent is where all the tracks were grouped together, but they spread out as they go down. Because they were camped out on the side of the slope. It was all exposed. It's away from any vegetation or anything like that. And Death of Nine also says that there were spots where a single set of tracks would veer off by themselves, only to rejoin the main set of tracks after a short distance. And witnesses disagree about how many sets of tracks there were. Some said there were eight, while others said there were nine or more. Unfortunately, there are a few pictures of the footprints and no photos of a complete set of of tracks. How many people were on this trip? Um, at that point, there were nine. There were nine. Initially, there were ten, but Yuri yeah. left. The next day, February 27th, is when they started fi- uh, finding the bodies. Tent was half buried in snow and was definitely cut open from the inside. They had seamstresses, like, confirm that, like, this is... It was definitely a blade and it was definitely, from like, coming from this mm-hmm. side to that side. Got it. So, February 27th, they found four bodies. As we get into the description of the bodies, there's gonna be some gore if your stomach churns easily i would say skip ahead the next couple of minutes 1100 meters from the tent and 300 meters from a cedar tree which we will get into was um igor dyatlov's body he was lying on his back his head in the direction of the tent with no hat covered in snow and his arm leaning on a small birch sapling igor and xena looked like they were going back up the hill was Zena's body found with Igor? So I'm going to queue up a map that I found, if I can find the right tab, because there's like a bunch of them. So they were found several meters apart, uh, several hundred meters apart. So that's the map of where the bodies were found. The tent is way over there. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. And so it's, it's far. Yeah. Downhill all this way. And there's kind of a... A valley kind of thing right there okay. and then a cedar tree just over here okay so igor was found 1100 meters away and xena was found this one's xena she was found mm-hmm. a few hundred meters towards the tent uh she was found on her stomach and in a position that indicated that she was trying to crawl back up to the tent because oh. um, her arm was kind of farther out and looked like she was trying to get back to the tent somehow uh, found by a search dog under 50 centimeters of snow, so almost two feet. Her head was pointing in the direction of the tent, and she was frozen in a pose as if trying to walk or crawl uphill. Also that day, February 27th, uh, the bodies of Yuri Doroshenko and Yuri Krivnoshenko were found under a cedar tree next to the remains of a fire. So it looked like they had been... Uh, those were also the least dressed of everybody, and oh. so it 
there was one theory that whatever happened happened most of the group made it up to the cedar tree because that was like a ways away the two yuris by the tree were made the fire um because there's evidence of burning on a couple people's hands and so theory is that they made the fire they left the yuris by the fire because they were the least dressed but then xena and igor might have gone back up to try and get more stuff the other theory is that one of the that doroshenko at least had died because yuri yudin had left some materials with them um including a shirt and mm. Igor was found wearing the shirt that Yuri Yudin said he had given oh. to Doroshenko. Theory is that... So they think maybe yeah. he died and then Igor took the shirt to kind of try to stay yeah. warm. Yeah. As he went back up to get a 1959 camping version of a space heater. And mm-hmm. so figured, well, all of the shoes are there. Like, there are seven shoes up by the thing. Most people, most of them were either in socks or barefoot. Um, it was a lot. So it seems like they purposefully left their shoes... I would think less purposely and more panicky because, oh, like they were because it's to, negative yeah. 26. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe they didn't have time to put on their yeah, shoes. Yeah. Um, most theories are premised upon the fact that something felt urgent and it's more of a let's be not here yes. rather than let's be warm and not here because yes. there are trees over there and we can make a fire. Um, I mean, if they had to cut their tent yeah, open, yeah. then maybe they were just concerned with leaving. Yeah. yeah. Um, so those four were found February 27th, uh, March 5th, Rustam Slobodin's body was found face down with arms out. Um, there's seven centimeters of an ice bed under his body, uh, which indicates that he was alive for some time after he found out, fell down because the heat would have melted the, a bit of the <gasps> snow, but there's so cold it would have refrozen. Oh my God. Which is terrifying. That is awful. <laughs> yeah. So those were, uh, the first five bodies that were found. Wow, there's still more. Didn't find the others until May 5th. May! Yeah. First four were found February 27th. Rustam was found March 5th. The rest were found May 5th. That's a whole new season. So those four, the final four, that cluster right there, that's a little, um, that's in sort of a ravine area, kind of near a stream. Okay. And it's sort of a, somehow they would have had to cross that body of water in order to get to the cedar tree oh. um and so the four of them were sort of clustered together there and i heard one description of because a world war ii soldier was mm-hmm. found in that cluster of four and they were all bunched together in the way that they were taught in world war ii i heard one source for this i don't know how accurate it is but they were all sort of chest to back because because apparently that's how you preserve your body temperature Um, Okay. And so it's sort of a, seems like this was the one that was, um, they're trying to stay together as much as they could. And And if you're real squeamish, this is your last chance to skip ahead a few minutes. Mm -hmm. Because this is uh, where we get into the missing body parts and kind of gory stuff. Yeah. uh, Ludia, or Ludmila, Domnina, was the first body of the four found uh, in the den, which is what they refer to as that sort of indent area. Kolovatov appears to be protecting or shielding Zolotaryov, and Nikolai is about a foot downstream because they're in a little uh, stream bed. They're all found basically on top of one another in kind of a ravine near a stream. Um, And Damnina is the one who has... Uh, no tongue, and at least one other body has no eyes as well. I will include a link to 
uh, one of my main sources for this, which is uh, dialofpass.com, which has like a lot, all of the original photos, uh, both from the traveler's cameras and from the investigation. Um, there, that does include photos of the bodies, which proceed at your own risk with those, but yeah. <laughs> um, those are there if you want, you have some morbid curiosity. If you don't, don't don't (laughs) um i did look and honestly it just looks like regular tear bodily decay it doesn't look like are you saying it doesn't look like alien abductions correct it It looks like they were under feet and feet of snow for several months and very well preserved but also but also on one side is several feet of snow on the other side is moving water and so it looks Mm. like how you might think it would look with that now that we've squicked everybody out Mm -hmm. (laughs) let's get into some theories do you know any of the theories slash do you have a leader okay um i don't have a lead theory so i've heard uh (laughs) i've been alluding to this but i've heard alien abduction because when people don't know what else yeah. It is. They always go to aliens. Yeah. I've heard something about the nuclear residue. Like, yeah. like I think some of their clothes had yeah. the remnants of uh, radiation. Yeah. Those two sort of tie into one another. It was the uh, group that was found by the stream in May um, that had the radiation on their, their clothes. I don't think any of those four were directly involved in nuclear anything. Nuclear what about anything, the guy but... who worked in, who volunteered at the radiated place? <laughs> uh, was he yeah. in one of them? Hang on, I'm going to pull the map back up. It... So Kolevatov was um, working at a research facility for nuclear stuff, um, so he but he have... wasn't involved in the cleanup. Oh. But I think the rates of radiation were someone had been in a facility that was adjacent, not necessarily okay. like, it was like more than the normal person, but so like cool. not as much of... If you'd been shot with a nuclear beam, yeah. there would have been more. Um, so could it have been because he was researching near? Yeah. So been... that was the impression that I got is okay. that it's sort of like he might have gotten some as by being adjacent to it. But yeah. not necessarily. I Again, I am not a physicist or have any degree of nuclear anything. So if I'm completely off base on this, uh, please I'm, write in and let us know. Podcast at gmail.com. I'm sure you're right. Yeah. The YouTube videos make it seem like they were covered in radiation. <laughs> well, so a lot of the clothes did have uh, like more than the average amount of radiation. Um, that said, again, several of them worked near or adjacent to nuclear stuff and so my guess would have been that it was there already yeah that was there already or um would have been absorbed sort of adjacent to that again please correct me dream midnight podcast at (laughs) gmail.com if um you have a more accurate thing i'm open to being corrected and we'll find out on the next one (laughs) all right so the uh, theory that has the most uh, evidence is um that it was an avalanche of some sort the theory is that the hikers heard sounds uh, that indicated that an avalanche was imminent and they evacuated because it was the middle of the night and figured it's better to be like down into the side in the trees or off of kind of a cliff area that was right there. It would be better to be over there than in the direct line of the snow and falling snow could have been a compelling unknown force because that was a lot of part of the uh, autopsy is that they died of a compelling unknown force and or oh. hypothermia, um, especially for the four that were 
found later. And so falling snow could have been the compelling unknown force. Um, and there's this very particular kind of uh, avalanche called a snow slab style, which is instead of having like the entire side of the mountain come off, it's just this one section oh. in a very particular confluence of wind and like the tent could have been at the right angle where the wind and the snow and whatever could have created a buildup and then that buildup fell over the over the tent. So, because you said the tent was like half buried, if yeah. it was an avalanche, wouldn't it be? I guess mostly it's buried. Most yeah. like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's fair. So there was an American skeptic author uh, called Benjamin Radford who was trying to refute the Yeti hypothesis, and we'll get into There's that. There's the Yeti hypothesis. We'll get into that. Um, so Benjamin Radford says. Um, Quote, the group woke up in a panic and cut their way out of the tent either because an avalanche had covered the entrance to their tent mm. or because they were scared that an avalanche was imminent. Better to have a potentially repairable slit in a tent than risk being buried alive in it under tons of snow. They were poorly clothed because they had been sleeping and ran to the safety of the nearby woods where trees would help slow the oncoming snow. In the darkness of night, they got separated into two or three groups. One group made a fire, hence the burned hands, while others tried to return to the tent to recover their clothing since the danger had passed. But it was too cold, and they all froze to death before they could locate the tent in the darkness. Um, at some point, some of the clothes may have been recovered or swapped from the dead, but at any rate, the group of four, whose bodies uh, were most severely damaged, were caught in an avalanche and buried under four meters or 13 feet of snow, more than, a, more than enough to account for the compelling natural force the medical examiner described and the tongue situation was likely removed by scavengers or ordinary predation like animal yeah. scavengers yeah yeah also eyes and tongues and soft tissue are the first to go when you're decomposing also again she was face first in a uh, stream so erosion yeah yeah um and this was one of the theories that was revisited in, or in the 21st century. And someone else in the New Yorker, Douglas Preston, writes in summarizing the uh, 2020 um, analysis, is the most appealing aspect of Karyakov's scenario, the, who wrote up the 2020 analysis, is that the Dyatlov party's actions no longer seem irrational. The snow slab, according to another expert, would have probably made loud cracks and rumbles as it fell across the tent, making, making an avalanche seem imminent. Mm -hmm. um, Karyakov noted that although the skiers made an error in the placement of their tent, everything they did subsequently was textbook. They conducted an emergency evacuation to ground that would be safe from an avalanche. They took shelter in the woods. They started a fire. They dug a snow cave. Had they been less experienced, they might have remained near the tent, dug it out, and survived. But avalanches are by far the biggest risk in the mountains mm -hmm. in the winter, and the more experience you have, the more you fear them. The skier's exp expertise is what doomed them. Oh. And again, that's from that's Douglas sad. Preston. Yeah. The counterpoints to the avalanche theory. Well, before we get into that, <laughs> I just want to say that it's nice because, yes, when you see, if you look up certain things on the Dyatlov Pass, it makes it seem like they were acting so irrationally. Why did they have such little clothes on? Why did they leave their shoes? Why did they... Yeah cut the tent and it makes it seem like like they were so spooked that they were acting stupidly i guess yeah but knowing that this is just the textbook like how you deal with an avalanche yeah. i'm yeah, like exactly. oh it all makes sense yeah. now and the way i think about it is just sort of a if you're in an avalanche sort of situation the best place to be is not right there yeah so if you're trying to just get not here then it just yeah. it feels like screw our shoes there's firewood over there let's just 
get not right here. I'd rather have a couple missing toes than then, be dead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. So the counterpoints to the avalanche theory. <laughs> Number one, possibly most important, there is no evidence of an avalanche. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's, well, that's why I was slab- wondering about the tent. Like, wouldn't it have been completely yeah. buried? Even a slab avalanche, the sort of part of the thing. Also, the bodies that were found in February were only under a shallow layer of snow. Um, if it had been like a full avalanche, there would have been more than just like a couple yeah. feet. There have been a few studies of the terrain on that side of the mountain and avalanche conditions are unlikely. And the last point for that is um, the footprint patterns that they did see uh, were consistent with walking at a regular downhill pace, not at a run. Okay. So. Okay. Yeah. So see now it's now I don't believe the avalanche theory <laughs> <laughs> because yeah. how the heck does it explain all that? Yeah, I mean I wasn't able to find any sort of any way to do. Like, I didn't find how you would if, do a slab avalanche. If like, you did, okay, if they were if there were footsteps coming from the tent, but there was an avalanche, the snow would have <laughs> covered, covered the, the footprints. <laughs> yeah. What the heck? Maybe those YouTube videos are actually onto something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So uh, I know once the next two together, um, UFO slash testing from either military or nuclear plants, which ties into what you were... Uh, mentioning and these are mostly trying to explain the extra radiation found on the group's clothing uh second group especially and um the Blinoff group that was parallel but a few miles over mm-hmm. uh reported seeing these weird orange orbs and lights and so the ufo theory uh explains the existence of the lights some people also say it accounts for the missing eyes and tongues but again the missing body parts are more consistent with um, erosion. erosion and decomposition rather than getting them the, cut out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, if it was aliens, though, then why would they have left the tent? Like, why would yeah. they have gone all the way to the trees? And wouldn't they have taken the entire party? Yeah. And not just some of them? Because the group that was out there longer is the only one that has all of the bodily damage. That's true. Yeah. Maybe it was a combination of both. Combination. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, uh, yeah, I don't know, but this doesn't make sense. Yeah. So the next theory is that a uh, Yeti got to them. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Okay. I'm ready for this theory. <laughs> First off, I want to see if I can find the photo. It's mostly based off of this photo. Oh, that is it. Bigfoot in the snow photo. Yep. So it's the last frame on one of uh, the hikers' cameras. Oh. Uh, but, 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 but. Here is a photo of several of them uh, all bundled up and ready to start skiing. Oh, yeah. Okay. It could totally just be a low-res, blurry yeah. image of another hiker. Yeah. <laughs> I will also say that depending on or that according to yeti lore wouldn't the yeti yeah. be white fur yeah. so that it blends into the surroundings instead of just yeah. bigfoot <laughs> in the mountains yeah so the mansi people do have a 
bipedal yeti type of thing. Uh, it's called the Mank, M-E-N-K. You know me, I love my cryptids. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm mostly mentioning this one because hello, folklore podcast. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the photo is super out of focus and it could easily be another uh, team member with their hood up, uh, just coming out from like a pee break or something. Um, the regional yeti is called the Mank. Um, this is the just the summary from the Wikipedia entry. Um there are a number of epics in oral history that have them as uh, formidable forest spirits. Uh, the hero prince, which is sort of an archetype in the oral history and the legends there, uh, typically inflicts many pseudo-deaths on a mink until he, uh, he, the hero, is able to inflict a total death. Uh, the mink are protected by gods who intervene to prevent their deaths. However, the laws of gods can be bypassed by humans. And... Other side fact, uh, in the epics, minks occur in seven, such as seven mink from one mother, seven with one soul. Their eyes cannot look down, so the heroes often attack them from below while fighting in rivers. Fighting in rivers? They were found in a river. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And in uh, Kanti mythology, and those are the other tribe, in addition to the Mansi tribe, there's the other indigenous tribe. Um, They're local people of poor and... P.O.R. ancestry are aligned with the mink, who um, this group believes to be, quote, just like humans, only spirits of the parallel forest world, end quote. Interesting. Interesting. So wait, but so then what's the theory other than there's this photo? Is the theory just Just a yeti came? (laughs) uh, That I guess they angered the mink and then the mink killed them. Uh. There was also like one theory that was very quickly debunked that the Mansi killed them. Um, uh, and that just which sounds is like, like racism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's what I figured, which is why I didn't type it up any more of it. But it basically sounded like if you looked at the Mansi for more than like 45 seconds, they're not super violent towards hikers. Mostly, like, especially at that time of year, mostly they're be going out to see if there's anything to hunt. They're not really, not really going to engage much. Yeah. Um, it's sort of a let's mutually agree not to mess with each other also it seems like anything that could have killed them like okay if a yeti if a mank killed them or if a person killed them there there would be evidence of that on the bodies yeah but it's just seems like they died of exposure yeah um most of the official things are listed as um hypothermia or adjacent Mm -hmm. um there's only a couple of the bodies that were found later with the um, compelling force. Hypothermia also could explain if they had less clothes because when you're in hy- when you're hypothermic, you feel hot. Yeah. So that is a theory about the clothes. It's called paradoxical undressing, mm-hmm. uh, where you feel really, really hot, and so you start taking things off. Um, the one thing I would say about that is that if they did start taking things off as hypothermia set in, I feel like there would be a trail of clothes down the mountain That's as they true. went. Um, so it could have just been exposure. Yeah. Um, but there's one interesting thing um, that didn't know where else to put, or theory four, is infrasound, which is infrasound. below sound below the audible human spectrum. And this is interesting in part because, like, houses that are often... Uh, thought to be haunted are if you I don't know how you read it but there's some sort of meter that can read the spectrum of sound and there's a lot of infrasound in places that 
are often said to be haunted. I don't remember exactly what program it was, but I do remember watching this program in high school. Take it with a minimum decade mental space. But um, there was one program where they uh, set up some sort of thing in, in like a jail or something like that that was not entirely known to be haunted. Like there was no stories about it. They had people come on a tour. They had set up a generator that could make infrasound or things mm-hmm. that are down there. And they had one of the people, the guides who was in on it, they did like a brief interview with him. And he was like, yeah, I'm getting freaked out and I know what's going on. So because infrasound yeah. starts to have effects on the body. <gasps> okay. First of all, how dare you make a scientific explanation for ghosts? We are a ghost podcast. You can't <laughs> oh my <do> God. That. <laughs> Second of all, that's terrifying. And I want to hear more about yeah. this theory. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So the reported effects um, include those on the inner ear and vertigo and imbalance, uh, intolerable sensation, incapacitation, disorientation, uh, and, and infrasound has been observed to affect uh, the pattern of sleep minutely. So theory was that there are circumstances to generate infrasound and that might have contributed to them uh, running off. <laughs> the link that I'm going to include the that has the map, uh, the dialofpass.com link, definitely go click around there um, because it has uh, images from like from the autopsy, mm-hmm. like both the actual photographs. So uh, proceed with caution. But uh, side by side, they have like the autopsy notes of like, where it's not the actual person, it's sort of like an image of a generic human and mm-hmm. the tech would note, like, do an X here for oh, bruising yeah, yeah, yeah. and that kind of thing. Um, so that one of the books there, Dead Mountain, um, the author of that uh, believes that the combination of effects of infrasound, the deafening noise of tornadoes and the claustrophobic pitch black tent could unseat even the most steady-minded adventurer. Especially if there's a group mentality going on. Yeah. Where if one person's freaking out and then the second yeah. person starts freaking out, it's yeah. just... Yeah. A mess. Um, this quote uh, is also from uh, the uh, com. They have theories and infrasound is on one of the theories. And it goes on. To, and so that quote was from that. And it goes on to say, although it is so remote and inaccessible that uh, the weather phenomena cannot be directly observed there in winter, it has been observed in similarly shaped locations, <gasps> including the Rock of Gibraltar and array of other peaks. Oh, my God. So, so that could be it i mean yeah i mean i think personally i think that it's a combination of infrasound plus possibly some sort of small slab avalanche i feel like my theory now is that it was infrasound and because they didn't know what was going on they assumed it was an avalanche and so they acted as though avalanche procedure and then when they realized that it wasn't they it was too late to go back yeah but that's all i have Oh my god. Wait, so your theory is infrasound plus avalanche. Correct. All right, I think we're, we're yeah. pretty much in agreement there. <laughs> All right. Well, let us know what you think, dear listeners. Reach out to the podcast via email, drearymidnightpodcast at gmail.com. And follow us on Instagram at drearymidnightpod. If you want to follow my Instagram, I'm at Knitting Jedi. <laughs> Celeste, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, my Instagram is at Celestial Tees. All right. And until next time, stay away from infrasound and safe travels home on this dreary midnight. Good night. Good night.